0: Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, people don't normally respond to that. You really caught me off guard. My name's Kay Millie.
1: K.K. Millie.
0: Here with Nate Wagnon. Come on. And you just became a father
1: again. I did.
0: Tell us about her.
1: Oh, baby Joy is perfect.
0: She is perfect.
1: Hey, let me brag on Margaret for a minute. Do it. Because... Some of y'all heard me mention Margaret, my wife, you know, a handful of times on this podcast, but she got induced. She
0: did. Yes, she did. She
1: was she was a little bit late, and because she's a little bit older, she was in a high-risk or whatever category, and so they induced her. She rode the Pitocin train, which is crazy if you've ever given birth before. It's Doo-doo. kind of like the labor with Pitocin is typically more intense than mm-hmm. if you just induce naturally. Anyway, she rode the Pitocin train, and that woman just straight up had that kid. No drugs, no nothing, all natural, just. She's a beast. She just had that kid. It was amazing. So, good so job, baby. This right makes
0: baby number four. Baby number four. How much sleep are you getting? Actually,
1: baby number five. We lost one in between miles and jewels. Mm. Um, so, four here, one in heaven. But this is great. I mean, we're sleep-deprived, and there's humans all over my house now. I'm like, <laughs> the heck? Where did all of you people come from?
0: I came from you, Nathan.
1: (laughs) But anyway, yeah, thanks for asking.
0: We're going to get Nathan an extra shot of espresso and we're going to do this podcast. (laughs) So what are we talking about today?
1: Well, today we're talking with Dr. A.J. Sherrill, who is an Anglican priest in Charleston, South Carolina. And he worked on his dissertation at Fuller on the Enneagram and has written a book called The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. So we're going to talk about what this tool is, kind of where it came from and how people think about it, especially in the evangelical world, how it actually is a helpful tool for us in our discipleship to Jesus. So you guys enjoy this episode.
0: Welcome podcasters. We are excited to be in the studio today with Dr. A.J. Sherrill, who's talking to us about the Enneagram. The
1: Enneagram?
0: Yeah, if that scared you... Isn't
1: please. that the devil?
0: Okay, <laughs> we will talk about that. So if you're afraid, just keep listening. But Dr. A.J. Sherrill has been a pastor and a teacher for the last 20 years. Currently, he's at a church in Charleston, South Carolina. Nice. Got his degree from Fuller Seminary and helps teach there and wrote a book called The Enneagram for spiritual formation, which we both highly recommend. Yeah. So, AJ, welcome.
2: Yeah, so good to see you all today.
0: We are yeah. pumped to have you here with us and excited to be talking about the Enneagram. Yeah. So, tell us, how did you get involved in this subject? What drew you into the Enneagram? Why are you excited about it?
2: Yeah, well, like most of your listeners, I got dragged into it accidentally. It wasn't a, a concerted effort. It was probably... I was doing my doctorate at Fuller eight years ago or so and uh, found myself in the living room of a monk named Richard Rohr, and a few of us were taking a course with him on contemplative spirituality, and he started talking about the Enneagram. And there's only a couple of us in the room all day with him for a week. And we said, wait, 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 the pentagram, what are you talking about? <laughs> it was just one of those curiosities. And we got him off topic for a day That's awesome. and we spent a day because he had written before sort of the evangelical mainstream got involved with obsessing over the Enneagram to some extent. He had been doing work on it since the nineties and had written a book. And so after that, I just got really interested for no other reason than like being able to name my own stuff. It wasn't like, hey, let me put the world in a box or let me try to typecast everybody I know. It was more like, wow, this is really helpful for me to become aware, not of my behavior, but of my motives, Mm, which are things like what's underneath our behaviors. And that's not something that I had encountered in a personality theory. And so um, I first learned it from Father Rohr. And then years later, I I studied with Suzanne Stabile at a workshop before she and um, my friend Ian Cron came out with a book, The Road Back to You. They were sort of workshopping that idea at this workshop I was at. And from there on, I, I said to Suzanne at a break, I said, wait, wait, wait. I said, I'm a pastor. I care deeply about the church. The Enneagram is just sort of like a carrot it's not the point for me but it's really helpful so like who's using this tool to talk about spiritual formation about like how we grow in Jesus and she said, you know, to my knowledge, no one. Yeah. And so that sort of got me on a track, doing my dissertation on it and starting to speak all over the country around how the church begins to follow Jesus better. And that this is just a tool that helps us to do that. And so that's a little bit of my history, and it's been a wild ride yeah. for the last six, seven years.
1: It's cool how you're in rooms like that, like you with Father Rohr. And then you realize as you go, you're like, wait a minute, I think this might be like super significant. You know, Mm -hmm. We, We got him off track and then all of a sudden things start to happen and you feel like you're stumbling into it. But you look back on it and you're like, oh, this is like providential that the Lord is pushing guys like you into these spaces to really equip the church and help people in their own discipleship to Jesus. So for our listeners who have heard the word Enneagram but don't really have any idea what it is, probably a lot of... Twitter type information. Take a few minutes and just describe what is the enneagram, what's kind of the history of it? I know that's that can be difficult to summarize, but just condense it down for us and help our audience know what this thing is.
2: Yeah, it's a ninefold type. Might, we might call it a typology. All that is is it's a study of nine different types of personalities, and there are complexities and nuances even beyond those nine types. But it just sort of gives you a roadmap of what is motivating people and gives us permission to realize not everyone's like us, and maybe that's okay. Um, One writer calls it the nine faces of the soul. I like that because often the Enneagram is used as like an individual tool, like figure out what you're like, and isn't that cool, and you can go mean narcissistic or something like that. (laughs) But I think what's beautiful about it is our God is so big, so vast, so complex, and so beautiful I mean, we're talking about the triune creator here. One of the ways I love to talk about the Enneagram is it's really a communal tool, because Mm -hmm. when we realize that each of us bear the image of God, we bear the image of God in different ways. And what I love about that is that I need y'all in that studio to bear the image of God in the way that you all bear the image of God, and that I need to bear the image of God in my personality and the way God created me to do that, and together we actually show a greater picture of what God is like in the world than we can apart. So it doesn't mean like we can't bear witness to who God is by ourselves, but it does mean that the church has the specific call together in our diversity to show off what this God is like when we are healthy and growing in holiness. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that's a really great, compelling reason to at least give the Enneagram a shot. I know some people are like, yeah, I know, but it's pagan. And, you know, you end up worshiping Satan or something like that. I have never met anyone. (laughs) And I've done workshops all over the world with thousands and thousands of learners Never has there ever been a report back to me that someone began worshiping the (laughs) pagan gods of Greece because they got involved with the Enneagram. So I'm not saying it can't lead you to narcissism or something like that. Everything has a slippery slope, but I am saying I've just never heard of that report before in the church. It's been safe for me at least and for the people I've taught. And so it's been helpful for me and really challenging in so many ways.
1: So why do people just assume that it's pagan or what does it have its roots in?
2: Yeah, I I think there's been sort of a concerted effort and a wrong one, in my opinion, to make it like a Christian tool. So like when this thing really hit the evangelical mainstream, people are like, look, it's a new Christian tool and blah, blah, blah. And it's not. It's a neutral tool. And I think on the other side, people started digging and seeing, wait, other faith communities have used this. And so I think what happens is then we get scared of oh my gosh what if it's you know impregnated with some sort of like satanic influence or something like that You know, just like astrology or anything else, like you have to be guarded and careful with that. However, it's not a new age tool. It's not a Christian tool. It's a human tool, just like any personality theory. And so, like, I like to talk to people about money has been used in all sorts of wicked ways. Does that mean money's evil? No, but the root of that, if it's not actually motivated in a way that brings generosity and wholeness, um if it breeds greed and envy yeah like money's super unhelpful but if it breeds generosity and a way of being hospitable and a way of, of utilizing it in ways of being good stewards of god's creation money is actually really redemptive and beautiful and can be mm-hmm. helpful and i think the same thing applies to the enneagram like of course maybe you could find a way to use it to like lead you into like studying crystals i'm not sure but you can also use it to say okay this is a tool of self-awareness I'm becoming more aware of what's motivating me in the world. Mm -hmm. And now I can like name that and maybe pair some spiritual practices that are unique to my personality that can help me grow to become more like Jesus. I love
1: that.
0: So helpful. And I hope it's very freeing for those listening of knowing that this is just a tool that is neutral and what comes of it is truly dependent on how you use it. And so hopefully if you're listening, open up your hands. Be free.
1: (laughs) I think it would fit into the category of something like the thing ringing out of my head right now is the words common grace. It's just this thing that God has given to us. And we, as image bearers, can take this common grace and use it, as you said, either for good or for ill. And so that's really helpful, I think, just to see. That this fits into a category of other personality type theories like, you know, ones that are seemingly benign like Myers-Briggs, Myers-Briggs or yep. StrengthsFinder or something like that.
0: So here's a question. I bet about five years ago I looked up and all of a sudden every person I knew was talking about the Enneagram, specifically in the church, not outside of the church, but very much in our evangelical Christian bubble that we live in. Yeah, it felt so. like
1: it like emerged overnight or yeah, something. Yeah, and it
0: became very popular. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody's like, what number are you? How did this happen? What happened in the church that made it so popular? Like, why did it explode?
2: Yeah, that would be a really great question for sociologists. Um, of which <laughs> No, I'm you're the expert. <laughs> this is why we brought you here. <laughs> I can tell you what happened for me is that there were people who were voices in the church, you know, so Ian Cron has had a significant voice in the church, you know, same with Richard Rohrer. And we live in an age where some ideas stick and proliferate through things like podcasts and Twitter and social media. And I think it sort of came along at the right time with some of the voices that were sort of, beginning to really trend in those circles. And so it became in many ways a conversation that a lot of people wanted to have. And I think the other part of it too is it's accessible. It's not like heady academia. Mm -hmm. You can go down like rabbit trails with it, but I'm less concerned about it being used for like new age practice. I'm more concerned about it being used for like narcissism and totalizing Mm -hmm. like narcissism in a sense of like it being used to just get us focused on ourselves and how we're wired and what makes our true self, all that stuff. That's just sort of like cliche at this point. The other part of that is you can totalize other people and put them in a box and try to figure out like, Oh, I know this person because they do these things. And I think one of the reasons that it trended so well is because at the end of the day, like many of us, you know, we have narcissistic tendencies. What? (laughs) I don't know. Let's take the sign of Zodiac. Nobody knows any other sign except their own, right? Like everyone can tell you like, Oh, I'm a Leo or I'm a whatever, but they have no idea when someone says, well, I was born in March. You're like, Oh, I only know what August is. Why? Because all we really care about, like when you get the Chinese menu and you see the different animals that represent all, you know, is that you're the rooster. You have no <laughs> idea that, who is the snake or whatever because we we do have a narcissistic tendency. And I think that was the other reason that it probably grew like it did. Certainly not the only, but narcissism sells. Yeah. Uh,
0: and actually, I can personally relate to that. Even thinking back to my own exposure to the Enneagram, I, my brother gave me the book, The Road Back to You. And I was reading through it and he was like, I promise you'll just know when you hit your type. And I was reading and it was talking about – I'm an Enneagram 5. It was talking about these people tend to like National Geographic. And I literally pulled one out of my bag as I was reading this book. And I was like, it knows everything about me. And so I started going to people being like, have you heard of this tool? It It knows. It knows me. And so there was this element of like, oh, I feel really known by that. And therefore, because I felt like it explained to me really well that that was useful. And so I can relate to
1: that. Yeah. And everybody's favorite subject is themselves.
2: Well, and at the same time, I think what was helpful about that when I first learned the theory is that it it didn't just expose sort of the beauty that I bring to the world. It also really exposed the brokenness that I contribute to it. I think, you know, in this book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation, like it's really important to begin with our identity, that your identity is not your personality. The Enneagram is all about your personality type. Your identity is so much something so much deeper than that. And so like, If you can become aware that you're beloved and there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less that in grace through Christ, you are loved, that you are loved, that you are loved, that we don't have a performative religion. This isn't a meritocracy in the kingdom of God, meaning we don't merit our way into God's heart. Mm. God has chosen to love the world and is inviting us into his redemptive plan over all of creation. Then you can sort of know where you're grounded in your being and you can get really curious about ways that maybe there's some growth that I need to face in my life for the sake of my marriage, for the sake of my community, for the sake of those around me that's going to be good for the world. And I'm no longer, I don't have to be ashamed by that. I can name it yep. because we can't change what we don't name. So a lot of people, I think, subconsciously run from this theory because who wants to face that, especially right. if they're not grounded in their belovedness in Christ? it's easy to sort of feel shame and to feel like, well, I don't even want to know of what my motives are. I mean, our behaviors are at times suspicious enough, let alone our motives of what's driving that. We prefer to kind of keep those things swept under the rug. And so there's a lot of reasons. It's a great question, Karen. Those are some things that I suspect are at least a few of them that rise to the top for me.
1: Yeah, so That brings up a a great point that was kind of an epiphany for me as I started looking into the Enneagram because at first I was like, oh, these are just personality expressions. And if you do these things, and then I was listening to a podcast by somebody, but they basically said, hey, this is not about behavior. This is about motive. This is the, why are you doing what you're doing? So that was a big kind of shift for me. Because at first you're like, oh, this personality type behaves like this. And yet the Enneagram is really about behavior at all. It's about what's driving you to do that. As we talk through this, why don't you very briefly walk us through the nine types and uh, motivations of each type and what distinguishes them from the others and how they work together?
2: The one is typically like a, a perfectionist or a reformer, someone that cares deeply about things being right it's that person that sometimes can come off as a bit anal retentive, but has a lot of reasons that things need to be the way that they should be. They usually make like really great teachers, great lawyers, people like this. Twos are the helper and the giver. These are people that love to really help and serve. And they often are motivated when they're healthy with the desire to make things better for others. But often there's a subversive unhealth underneath there that needs to sort of be lovable and loving in order to receive love in return. So there's all sorts of mischief that the the two, like every type has to become aware of. For the three, this is the performer or the achiever. Um, This is the one that typically is agile, can sort of float and become whatever an environment needs in order to succeed and to achieve what it is that they need or want in that moment. The four is the individualists or sometimes known as this sort of romantic. Um, they love the feeling of life and love to be sort of independent and individualist, unique in that way. They're ones that sort of size up a room and wonder like, what's my distinctive here? And how am I different than everybody else in order to know who I am? Um, the five is the investigator. or Often these people are also observers. They're on social media, but they're not necessarily posting a lot. That's not Ah, uh, 100% of the time, but they're people that just are very aware of what's happening in the world. Culture, they're great readers, great researchers, have um, a lot of data and knowledge at their hand, and also sort of have a greed for it. So they don't easily share. They don't like to
1: share uh, their
2: knowledge. <laughs> My wife is a five on the Enneagram; she presents five, so we have a lot of fun with that. Um, as awesome. a preacher, I'm always like, "Hey, did you like? What did you read the other day? You're telling me about." And she's like, "Go read it for yourself, preacher boy." <laughs> pretty awesome. She's like, I worked hard for that. I'm not going to put my cookies on the low shelf for you. <laughs> the six is a loyal skeptic. And this is someone that sort of like finds comfort in institutions, but also is very suspicious of them. It's a, it's a complicated type. There's actually two ways that this type can show up. One is like a phobic where there's just a lot of fear that governs and runs life. Our pandemic for the last year and a half has been really rough on sixes for many ways. I mean, obviously, it's been rough on all of us. But this, this personality type, it can be even more crippling. Um, but then there's this like other crazy extreme side of this counterphobic where they sort of try to conquer that by sort of laughing in the face of fear and doing um, irrational things that many sixes wouldn't. So it's, it's a fascinating, interesting type that we won't get into today. But in some ways, they love to find loyal systems when they find the right people. They love to build teams and they love trust, but it just takes a while for them to actually not be suspicious of the people Mm -hmm. or the systems around them. The seven is what's known as the enthusiast or the epicure, the entertainer, as some say. Um, A great example of someone like this, I don't know if he was a seven, but Robin Williams sort of screams that for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone who is just always on, you know, they often live in the future in their minds. So the idea is to plan the most enjoyable life ahead so that we could maybe get out of this present suffering that you're in or struggle that you've had in your past. Eights are leaders. They're also protectors or challengers. These are people that actually get energy around solid debate and argumentation. They love justice. They love this idea of advocating for what is right and true in the world, similar to ones in some ways, but um, they're also not afraid to offend you if they think they're standing for the right cause. They also make great attorneys, things like that. Nines are the peacemakers, the mediators. They're really good judges. They're really good at objectivity. They're also kind of low energy people in a good way. Like the kinds of people that people trust when they're in a room and kind of run toward because they're safe spaces typically, um, but can sometimes lose their own voice because they're trying to keep everyone happy in the room. That's Down. my He's wife. just like my wife oh, identifies as a nine. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You just described Margaret.
2: Go Margaret.
1: Yeah, heck yeah.
2: yeah and even like naming these things in like three sentences or less is like hysterical because there's just yeah. complexity and nuance and subtypes and so many different directions you can go in. But this is sort of the basic caricature, if you will. That's great. So,
0: how do people find their type? And then, does everybody fit into one type cleanly?
2: Yeah. So I'll start with the first one. How do you find your type? I like to, to talk in my workshops about a cone of discernment. So like imagine as a cone starts, if it's upside down, it's wide and it narrows as you go further and further into it. If you think about discernment under that sort of framework, the first part of that cone is about saying, okay, take an online assessment. That can be really helpful. Although you're not always aware of what your motives are. So those aren't always the best, but it's a great place to start. Um, I always tell people start with the ready R-H-E-T-I on the Enneagram Institute because it's a little more reliable and it's 12 bucks and that will sort of narrow down. So you might find that you have some three in you, a lot of eight in you, a lot of one in you or whatever, and just say, okay, let me start by just now reading all of those types. Instead of saying, let me read all nine types and take a deep dive, which maybe if you're a five, especially like you, Karen. That's
0: what I did. (laughs) Yeah.
2: But it's it's a matter of saying, hey, if you don't have the time for that, to just sort of like find a few that you resonate with more than others from some online assessment and then read about them. And then what I tell people to do is once you have like two, three-ish picked out and you're like, I have a lot of eight in me and a lot of three, what I tell people is then look at your wings. Wings are like a clock. So what number is to the right and the left of the eight on a clock? Well, it's nine and it's seven. So Typically we lean, we have a core. So if eight is your core, you're going to lean with some nine tendencies at times, or also some seven tendencies. So that is helpful because you might say, well, if I'm a three, then I either got to lean four or two, and I don't connect with either of those. So I must resonate as an eight because I see also a lot of nine in me, right? Something like that is what I tell people if they're still struggling. And then the last thing, and I find the most fail-safe way to really type yourself, is when you read through them, it is the type that brings you the greatest amount of humiliation. (laughs) So everybody have a good time with the Enneagram. (laughs) It's that that sort of one that you're like, oh, no. That's it. Dang that's it. it. And, and it's usually not like, oh, that's awesome. You know, strength finders, you're like, I'm the best and I'm going to change the world. Yeah. And, you know, people need more of me. When, when you read through the diagram <laughs> you just kind of let it go on a shrivel and you're like, oh my goodness, this is so me. And that's yeah. embarrassing and humiliating. And that's what Father roar told me. He's like, hey, listen, AJ, find the one that brings you the greatest humiliation because that's probably you. And it's that spot in you that you've never named or yeah, that you good. just assume should go away. And then you just feel like someone's read your journal. Someone's sort of staring at the computer screen over your shoulder. And like, you're afraid that, oh yeah, they're going to confirm that I am that way. And that's not helpful. I think humiliation can be a really great tool. And again, it all goes back to belovedness because you can be really brave in the face of humiliation. If you know you're loved and you know that there's nothing that's going to change that. And that God's committed to your redemptive future and so that's a really helpful place to be. So
1: that's so critical, the the identity piece, because when you're secure in Christ, then uh, something like the Enneagram can be a tool that peels back some of the ways that we image ourselves, the narratives that we tell ourselves about who we want to be or who we believe ourselves to be. And as those things get stripped back, because we're secure in Christ, then you begin to realize, oh, wait, I don't want the version of me that's manufactured as a defense mechanism. I want me, the actual real me. And I think it's tools like this that can be a grace for people to know themselves more deeply. And as we'll get into in the next episode, the more deeply you know and understand yourself, the more deeply you can know and understand God.
2: I think the best way to say it, what I found connects with people more than anything is that your personality is not your identity. So it's like, okay, cool. Then what is it? It's a strategy. Your personality is a strategy that you have both received through your DNA and that has been forged through your life experience over the course of time that you navigate the world with. And so for some of you, I mean, that's why fight, flight, freeze. These are strategies in which we try to protect and cope and thrive in a beautiful and broken world. Mm-hmm. And so it's really freeing when you step back and say, okay, I resonate with a three in my motives. I get it. How am I using that sort of mask to cope and to um, strategize to get what I want in life? Yep. And there are ways in which that's helpful, and there are ways in which that's hurtful, both to you and to others. So this is why the Enneagram for me has been such a gift to say, once I name those things, I can really take that, bring it into the light, which wants to stay in the dark Mm -hmm. and pursue Jesus with those things.
0: I mean, that feels really empowering. Even that word, it's a strategy. It's something that is useful to you. It's not a hindrance necessarily. It's not like, oh, God made me this way. It's like, no, God made you this way. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing and he will use you. He promises to use you. And so more than maybe any other personality tool that I've come across, the Enneagram has a lot of misconceptions around it. There's a lot of things that people say about it that... I don't know. It just kind of gets put in a box, I think, in a lot of ways. And so one we've already hit on, Christians should not use this because of its potentially pagan roots. And I feel like we've covered that well. But AJ, what are some of the other common misconceptions that you have found when discussing the Enneagram with people?
2: Whenever I do a workshop, and and this is in the front of the book, because like our our identities, it's really important that people understand quickly. Um, There's some rules of engagement that I think are really important to get clear. And, and the first is this, number one is like to remember, to remember that you're not a number. You're so much bigger than a four. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> to, to acquiesce and allow yourself to be totalized by a number or to use that to totalize someone else. It's such a violation of yeah. the Imago Dei that God says is true about us. Mm-hmm. And so I just always begin by saying like, we can poke around and look at our personalities as something almost like like you're holding it out in front of you. To where it's not so enmeshed into who you think you are, because it is a strategy, that you can get curious about it without feeling like such a claustrophobia or such a shamefulness there. So remember that you're not a number. You're so much bigger than that. I think another thing I would say is to refuse. To refuse to be that Enneagram person or that Enneagram church or that Enneagram organization when this thing first came out years ago in the the evangelical stream, it was like everyone wanted to do an Enneagram workshop, you know, and I was the guy you called when you couldn't afford Ian Gron. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Congratulations on that. Way to go. Yeah, yeah. you're welcome.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Even though, you know, it, it was flying around the world, talking to Christians, to churches about this stuff, It sort of became the dominant lexicon, the dominant framework or lens through which organizations wanted to be seen as like sort of trendy or whatever. And I think the problem with that is that when you invite people into the life of your organization or community and they don't know it, they immediately feel like outsiders. Also, like the gospel is hard enough to communicate, let alone putting another lens on what you need to know in order to belong here. And so it can kind of serve if you're aware of like gnosis, this special knowledge that you have to have in order to belong at this church or in this leadership thing or whatever. You have to be careful about that. So remember you're not a number, refuse to be that Enneagram church or organization. The third is this, like resist the urge to type other people. Like that's really hurtful. I think a lot of the complaint I've got over the years from people are just, they just feel hurt. They feel like, you know, they got blackballed at work because they were seen as this type. And so it didn't avail them for the promotion or whatever. So what we're looking for isn't whether or not you're this number or that number as being better or worse, because that doesn't exist. They all matter. What we're looking at is, are you healthy or unhealthy? Mm -hmm. So the conversation isn't, I'm only going to hire a seven for this role. It's whatever role I hire, they need to be healthy within their personality or moving that direction. Just resist the urge to type other people. Another thing I would say about that is that You know, you're often not even aware of your own motives, let alone the motive of others. Like, so imagine like a glacier or an iceberg, what you see in people's behavior is just that top 10% above the water. You have no idea their story. You have no idea what's motivating them. You have no idea what they've been through. And so- two people can actually manifest the same behaviors, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. So Just be, just because you see someone being helpful doesn't even mean that they are two, because there are twos that are helpful that are motivated for very different reasons than a four might be. So you can't just look at someone's behavior, which is, by the way, all you have access to. Right. You don't have access to their hearts. Right. And the scriptures tell us, like, God search my own heart. Why? Because we often don't even yeah. check in with our own hearts. Yep. So when I show up to a party and I see Karen in the corner, I might see her doing some sort of behavior, but I have no idea why she's doing that behavior. And so that's the real good work of resisting the urge to type other people. Yeah,
1: But I would say if you do go to a party, Karen would be in the
2: corner.
0: Yeah, it's because she's scared of other people. (laughs) Nobody puts baby in the corner.
2: That's awesome. Okay, this sorry. This is why this is her final podcast yeah, here, you know. know right. suffer this she perse- <laughs> suffered this kind of persecution. Suffered. She suffered under my persecution. Oh, we'll get man. into your type later. Yeah. <laughs> the awesome. last is is to reclaim. And, and this is what all my work centers on. It's to reclaim the Enneagram as a means and not an end. Mm. The goal of the Enneagram is not to know the Enneagram. The goal of the Enneagram is to work it so that you can become healthy. I don't forget Adele Calhoun. She's a spiritual oracle. She's amazing, follower of Jesus. She does a lot of stuff on spiritual disciplines. And she wrote a really great book on the Enneagram and spiritual practices. And she said to me, if you don't work your number, you're wasting your time. Mm. And that was so big for me talking to her about that. I was saying like, the goal of the Enneagram is to become aware and to say, okay, now that I have this sort of understanding, this access to my own motives and what's fueling me, how am I going to grow that? How am I going to become aware of that? How am I going to slow down so that I don't continue X, Y, Z? So we need to work our numbers because the Enneagram is a means. It's not an end. It's good, man.
1: I love that. As we wrap up this episode, help us see how this means that God has given to us through just common grace. How can this help us as we grow in our own personal discipleship to Jesus? Give us a little bit of preview for what we're going to talk about next.
2: Yeah. So each type, all nine types, they're based in clusters of three, and some clusters are more cerebral some clusters are more emotional and some clusters are more sort of instinctual or willful. And that's the beginning of it. I I can't tell you how many Christians I know that just live in their heads and they haven't had an emotion or feeling, or they don't give themselves to that for one reason or another. And so that speaks into what kind of spiritual practices you should think to engage. I know Christians that love social justice and have this sort of instinct for all these really great causes in the world, but haven't actually prayed or listened to or participated in worship in like five years. That really matters because what we're looking at, the formation that the Jewish people gave us that Jesus inhabited and claimed was central in his own life and ministry is what's called the Shema. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then Jesus added mind through the Greco-Roman sort of lens that had proliferated. (laughs) And what he's saying is this, like we need a holistic spirituality to be healthy. And what happens in discipleship is we circle what we're good at and we ignore the rest call that following Jesus. Mm -hmm. So if you're good in your head, then you might circle, like I've read Calvin's institutes and I've read all the Bible. I've done all the, you know, BSF studies or whatever, and you've totally neglected the poor, Mm -hmm. or if all you want to do is advocate for some sort of social justice protesting for some issue, that's great. But are you in community with the body of Christ being known and confessing your own sin, not Mm -hmm. just calling out the sin of the systems? Mm -hmm. So there's like all of these ways in which we veer in our personality. And if we're not careful, we will omit becoming a holistic follower of Jesus. And that Uh matters immensely based Mm -hmm. on your personality. And so I give spiritual practices to pay attention to for each type that I think are helpful to grow people more into the image of Jesus. I love it,
0: dude. Man, preach! I'm ready to move to Charleston. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks for your time, man. We look forward to this next episode because I think it's super helpful to know, like how can I work my type so that I can become a more holistic follower of Jesus? So you guys stick with us. We're gonna be with AJ uh, next time talking about the Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. Thank you for listening to the Equipping Podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> People don't normally respond to me. That, that like totally caught me off guard. <laughs> no, that's crazy. If you enjoyed this episode with AJ, then you can go post about it. You can leave us a comment. We would encourage you to leave us a rating.
0: Can I be honest? Yeah. I don't know where these comments show up.
1: I'm not really sure either.
0: So thank you if you've left one. We don't know how to read it. <laughs>
1: We tell you to leave a comment because I think it helps with the discoverability of it online.
0: Leave a comment.
1: But you know what? I do biblical theology. <laughs> so or you can email us, which we do like that, getting emails from people at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. So join us next time. We're gonna keep going with AJ and finish our conversation on the Enneagram and spiritual formation. Peace. Bye.